Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P&N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. Pricing drugs and medical devices and the like is a very complex endeavor. Even though, and especially if you think about the different healthcare systems, maybe in a broader sense, if you say, for example, you have the US, Europe, and maybe Canada, Australia, with similar kind of ideas in terms of health technology assessment and the respective pricing and Asia. Today, we want to focus more on the two big blocks, let's say the US and Europe, with a bit of a focus more on what is currently being happening in the US and which kind of impact that might potentially have on the European pricing of drugs. Just generally, I think uh, to get a kind of introduction in the US, 64% roughly of health spending are paid by the government and are funded via programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, will be explained a bit later on by Jack, the Children's Health Insurance Program, TRICARE, and the Veterans Health Administration. Very important here also, people aged under the years of 65 acquire insurance via their or a family member's employer by purchasing health insurance on their own, getting government and or other assistance based on income or another condition, or are uninsured. Health insurance for public sector employees is primarily provided by the government in its role as an employer. Why is that important? Especially when you think about the latest Healthcare um, Inflation Reduction Act, which was just signed by President Biden a couple of weeks ago, which has a couple of important components in there. Besides others, there are a couple of points in there which might also affect prices of drugs. Lower prescription drug prices in Medicare through price negotiation with manufacturers. We're coming back on that point also with Jack and Renato. A yearly cap on out-of-pocket prescription drug costs in Medicare and the continued lower health insurance premiums through healthcare.gov and the state-based marketplaces. And finally also that the increase in prices for drugs are not allowed to be higher than the inflation currently happening, obviously also in the US. Why is that maybe important? Because as we have said earlier on, when you set a price for your drug, you have a global launch in mind, meaning you want as a company, obviously um, launch the product in the various markets and hence not only in the US, for example, but also in Europe. What and how is the situation in Europe? As you might know and have listened maybe to different episodes, there is a clear different healthcare system within Europe. And we have some countries like France and Germany where the 
benefit, the added benefit of a product is rather the important component before then it comes to a price negotiation in the whole kind of health technology assessment process. Whereas we have other countries where we have maybe more the cost effectiveness, the cost per quality as a core component of it, like the UK, even that they are no more belonging to the European Union, but obviously still uh, are a key country in Europe. And then we have a couple of countries, maybe you could say more driven by budget impact, but ultimately, let's say somewhere between those two quality extremes. Why is that also important? Because pricing and the price negotiations, especially in Europe, is heavily also dependent on international reference pricing, meaning when you go into negotiations, the company has to also show which kind of rebates, discounts have been offered in other countries. And obviously, the payers are also checking what they have and what they can find also as information within their network and publicly available. You could maybe then as well think of, yeah, but that's only the uh, Europe. And obviously, Europe is primarily looking on themselves. We have enough countries to say. But for sure, it's also the question if not the US might also take international reference pricing, especially when Medicare is now allowed to negotiate pricing, at least on some initial products into account, which could then obviously as well have an impact on the price setting in other countries. Let's see and discuss that with my two guests, Jack Mika, who was a director on pharma pricing and contracting at Roche Pharmaceuticals. After that, he was a global president and CEO of MME, and now he acts as the Vice President Pricing Reimbursement and Market Access as Indigene PRMA Business. Additionally, we have Renato Delamano, who also acted at various positions at Hoffman La Roche at a country level, but especially also on a global level, and has been the owner of Value Vector and now is the president of MME Europe. Both have a vast and long-standing experience in pricing drugs and medical devices across the world. So let's just listen in what they think about the current changes and debates in the US and the potential impact on Europe. Okay, welcome Jack and Renato, two of the, how could I say that, the two godfathers of pricing, I would say, right? <laughs> we learned all from it. We all know you, right? From all yeah. of these etc. <laughs> so great to have you. Thank you, Stefan, for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And I think if anybody's the godfather, I think it has to be the Italian in the room. (laughs) (laughs) That was not the intention, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. But maybe still, let's say, going back a bit, because I think we want to discuss today, not about the, the, you know, Italy, et cetera, but maybe part of it. But I think um, the idea was rather going to the U.S., uh, and also discuss a bit, let's say, latest pricing reforms, pricing reform discussions. A lot is already ongoing since a couple of months, maybe even years. So maybe, Jack, you could quickly summarize the latest where we are with U.S. pricing reform. Sure. Um, I mean, the, 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 the big thing that people are talking about from a, from a governmental impact perspective is the, is the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act that passed back in August. Um, and the Inflation Reduction Act is, is really primarily um, driven, by, driven by other things, not by, by changes to pharmaceuticals. But there's a, there's, a, there's a chunk in there that deals with healthcare, and the healthcare chunk then deals with uh, pharma pricing. Um, and basically, with three main 
areas that it's going after, right? One, the first one is the imposition of, uh, of uh, an inflation penalty similar to what we already have in Medicaid on Medicare. Medicaid is the program in the U.S. that's for the indigent or poor. Medicare is the program that primarily covers the elderly. Um, and basically what it says is, hey, if um, with a backdated backdated to January of 2021, if you take price increases that are higher than the 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 increase in inflation, the CPIU, um, then you're going to have to pay a rebate for the increases that you take above that. Um, so that's and I'll just kind of run through the three main things and then we can figure out where we want to go. Um, the second provision has to do with a cap on patient out of pocket costs. And what this basically is, is a, a little bit of a redesign of the, of the benefit within, within Medicare that has that famously for the last few years since, since uh, Medicare Part D came into place, people have talked lots and lots about the donut hole, the, the place where, where there's coverage below and there's a piece where the patient has to pick up the costs and then, there's, and then they get back into insurance coverage above that. Um, that donut hole is basically being eliminated by these changes, and they're going to be some some pretty aggressive um, uh, caps on patient out of pocket expenses that 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 come into play. Um, and then the third uh, the third big big area of reform are is that Medicare is going to is going to starting in 2026 begin to negotiate prices for a limited number of products that are generally near the end of their life cycle, but don't have generic equivalents. So that that the discussion that's been going on for a long time about should Medicare be able to negotiate price, which it does not do now, um, will would then change. Um, that those are the three big provisions. There's lots of other things that are that are um, that that potentially have big impact, but I'll I'll leave it at that, Stefan, for now, and you can you can take us where you'd like us to go. Very good. I mean, as you said, there is already a lot ongoing, and I think uh, you know the inflation penalty is, is probably. I think um, our generosity, or think, I mean, Renato just comment on that as well in, the, in a couple of seconds. I think not, not probably not the biggest kind of potential impact on European pricing as well. Where I see probably the bigger kind of potential impact is on your third point, where we just say Medicare could potentially negotiate um, prices. I mean, you just said it might only be for a limited number of products, maybe yet. Uh, so it's also the question, obviously, how economic might look like in 2026 and beyond. But I don't know. I mean, Renata, how, how do you see that? Or Jack, please comment as well. I mean, yeah, and I, I wouldn't, and I, I, I tell you, Stefan, don't sleep on the inflation penalty and its impact on XUS. Um, there's, there, it's not a direct impact, but there are, there are other impacts. And the other thing that I wouldn't, uh, uh, that I wouldn't assume is going to happen is that this the 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 timing of this these changes being passed had to do with the them wanting them to be passed before there was the the election that just happened in the US when when there was some somewhat alignment between between the 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 Democrats having control in Congress as well as the presidency and they wanted to get this this law passed during that time knowing that if the election had had gone Republican for the Congress, many or maybe all or close to all of these provisions might never be implemented. 
Um, we ended up with a split election between the two houses. Um, the, the Something like the negotiation starting in 2026 is not something to assume that will be implemented as written. Um, so from that perspective, I think the inflation penalty as the nearest term with the backdating, with some of the other stuff that's going on, is is easily the most likely thing to happen. And the implications that it has in other ways are interesting. I'll let Renato comment before I take it any further. Yes, please, Renato. What are your thoughts on that? Thank you. Thank you, Stefan and Jack. Uh, actually, I'd say uh, from, from a European perspective, looking at U.S. pricing, the fact that U.S. prices are a lot higher than European prices is kind of a fact of life. It is part of what people normally accept as almost obvious. And uh, the fact that visible WAC prices in the US are so much higher than visible X factory prices in Europe is also tempered by the other kind of, uh, uh, I call, I'd call it as a piece of uh, common sense, meaning that everyone thinks about that being the right thing, uh, you know, visible prices are only an approximation, a gross approximation of real prices. And everyone, uh, both at, especially at the national level, truly worries about net prices, not visible gross prices. So if there is a price differential between the US and Europe, that's typically at the visible prices, price level, WECO in US, X factory in Europe, that's accepted almost, uh, at least on this side of the Atlantic, almost uh, uh, as, a, as an inevitable fact of life. Uh, what really is the focus in Europe is the net prices. So a lot will depend on the form that those negotiations will take in the United States and to what extent those forms of negotiations will be possibly transferable to what happens in Europe. On the other hand, I can also see an impact of uh, a recent debate in the United States regarding the quality and the quantity of clinical evidence supporting approvals, possibly affecting the, uh, let's say, the European debate about both regulatory process and health technology assessment processes, in particular in view of uh, the 2025 uh, a big change, supposedly big change uh, with the introduction of centralized health technology assessment in the European Union. Uh, the fact of the matter is that, especially in oncology, with a number of recent uh, prominent cases of drugs that had to withdraw from the U.S. market as a consequence of uh, withdrawal individual indications or products that had to withdraw altogether uh, as a consequence of progression-free survival data not being replicated uh, 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 in terms of overall survival benefit, you know, that kind of debate may affect on this side of the Atlantic uh, uh, the debate about uh, the EMA not being flexible enough because they don't. We our sort of accelerated approval process is more demanding than the one available in the United States. You know that sort of debate is uh, uh, that is currently ongoing in the United States is likely to affect 
the, the European debate in that sense. And uh, knowing that there will be a centralized approach to HTA in Europe, I wonder uh, whether the centralized approach will be taking the form of, let's say, the most severe approaches, like uh, the French uh, refusing reimbursement to a number of treatments simply because of the design of clinical trials. Is it going to take the form of what's going on in Germany with Amnog, or is it taking the form of what's going, what's going on in more general systems, like paradoxically Italy? in which uh, we have several products, several drugs that have been refused reimbursement in France or that had to be withdrawn from the German market post-Amnog, you know, they are available and reimbursable in Italy. Personally, I believe that if there, if there will be a common denominator in the European Union, that will be closer to the most demanding health systems. But Again, it's uh, difficult to predict this, but I can only say, you know, there, there are a number of factors that possibly will, uh, uh, will make our, let's say, innovation life tougher in Europe in future than, than it is today for a number of reasons. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I, I still want to touch base a bit on the negotiation bit. And I'm coming back, Jack, I think to your comment as well with the potential indirect uh, impacts of that Inflation Act, which I think uh, might also uh, be interesting, obviously, for all of us. But I mean, if I mean, if I would think out of, let's say, negotiations from a European perspective, I would always as well think about, let's say, reference prices, right? Reference prices from other countries. Do you think that might be something would uh, could also be taken into account in the U.S.? At least for some prices from, I guess, Canada. But I mean, then you have only one country, so maybe still other kind of countries out of the out of Europe. I mean, I guess it's possible. I think that the I think that the the I think I, I bring it all back to the fundamental statement that Renato made that I think this is all built upon. Of well, we all know U.S. prices are higher than prices in the rest of the world. Well, I think the I think the people who know that least of anybody are the people in the U.S. historically, and now that they know it, I don't know that they're so happy about it. And from that perspective, I mean, I think you, I, I think, I think this is this isn't a short-term game. This is a long-term game, and I equate it, if anything, to to be most similar to the Germans pre-Amanog pre saying, hey, we don't mind paying the highest prices in Europe. We just don't like that our prices are, are, are have as big a margin higher than they, than they are. And look at how that has progressed and changed over the last few years. Think of fundamentally that same kind of effort, obviously done in a different way, applying to the U.S. and how that would reshape the biopharmaceutical markets around the world. If the U.S. says we're not willing to subsidize the rest of the world because that's what we feel like we've done, and therefore we're going to go at this differently, that's going to change things significantly. And, whether, and, and my guess is that trying to do that through international reference pricing is, given, given that, as Renato said, list price isn't the, isn't the, isn't the goal anymore in Europe, it's net price. Well, then what are you referencing? And certainly at the beginning of the Amnog reforms, my impression from talking to people was that by that by talking about net prices being visible in Germany, 
one of the one of the ideas was maybe that'll lead to a change and everybody will reveal their net prices and then we'll and then we'll pierce the veil of this international reference pricing at a gross price level and nobody followed so that didn't happen so it happens behind the scenes in different ways um but that's what i mean about about understanding that i think this is folks playing a long game not a short game so it's not a question of which products can I grab today and negotiate price on. That could that could certainly provide a good short-term gain, but that's not going to necessarily solve the longer-term problems that I think people are are, are most concerned about. Yeah, yeah. no, it, absolutely interesting. Uh, rather, um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, especially when we let's say when we take and, and Jack, you brought that also already up. Obviously, it's not only about the let's say the systems speaking to each other, if if I want to say it like that, right? It's also around the companies obviously planning for their let's say global launches, global pricing strategy, etc. Where I would also agree that I think at least you know the the years I have also been working on the global level, it was basically the U.S. And then you had the rest of the world. And within the rest of the world, you had maybe EU5, right? And then you had, let's say, really the other kind of countries. But I mean, if I would, let's say, follow more your kind of idea as that being a long-term game, where I agree, uh, would we not rather see a kind of, uh, let's say, convergence of prices around the different countries, at least between Europe and the US, probably more on a much lower level at the end of the day? If, if I can make a comment from a European perspective, I'm not sure that convergence is really going to happen. Perhaps we are going to have less large differentials at launch, because then the other thing that uh, we need to consider is the possibility of changing prices post-launch, uh, especially in Europe. Those changes only happen in one direction, and that's towards lower prices post-launch. I don't know if the reform in the United States will eventually uh, uh, result into, uh, uh, into the abolition of price increases over time, or will just put a cap on the, num on the, on the level of annual price increases that can, be, that can be brought forward, as to some extent is already true these days, uh, at least for certain price levels. Um, but I can still see uh, launch prices being still different, with U.S. being still significantly higher than Europe. Maybe not to the extent that we are seeing these days, especially in oncology. You know, it's uh, it's amazing looking at uh, new oncology drugs being launched in the United States at prices per month. Talking about WAC, visible WAC prices in the ballpark of thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars per patient per month, and the same products being launched in Europe, uh, even in Germany, pre-Amnog uh, at uh, less than half, and then obviously post-Amnog going, going even further down. You know, probably that kind of price differentials maybe will no longer be tolerable in future. Uh, and then the other thing is how will Price evolution change, you know, on the two sides of the Atlantic. Um, I don't know that that is going to change significantly. And I think, and I think Renato, Renato, is is right in what he's talking about. But at the same time, I think that that's where I go back to what I was what I was alluding to, Stefan, with don't sleep on the inflation penalties impact in the short term, because I think the big impact of the inflation penalty in the short term for manufacturers is it turns up the heat on, you better get your launch price right. 
Because if you don't get your launch price right, you're not going to have the chance in the U.S. US, as occasionally is done. Wow, this product is much more valuable than I thought it was. So therefore, I'm going to hit it with price increases on a pretty regular basis and take it to a different level. Can't do that anymore. Once you can't do that anymore, that means you better get it right the first time. And that then that then draws into question, as Renato's saying, okay, what kind of gap am I going to have in this launch price? Am I going uh, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to sacrifice the, the premium that I think I can get in the US so that the so that the prices are more level? Or am I going to do whatever I can do in order to increase the prices outside the US? In order to in order to make those prices more level, that's not entirely clear, but that's the vice that's going to be squeezing a lot of a lot of pharma companies, I think, in the short term. Yeah, that's that. I mean, that that's an interesting one, absolutely. I mean, if, if I let's say let's say turn that probably even a bit further, I mean, if I would say um, I have the products on the market where I can fully understand it. I mean, as you just said, I mean, I can only increase the price in the U.S according to the rate of the inflation makes in a way sense, at least from a European perspective, right? It um, does from a U.S. perspective too. That doesn't mean <laughs> the markets have performed, but it makes sense. I'm with you. The logic is there. Exactly. exactly. But, you know, I mean, if, if I would be now in the, let's say, shoes of a company, which is just being planning the launch, as you said it, right? Get your launch price right at the early beginning. Would that not mean that ultimately, let's say the whole, healthcare systems and the payers would at least that they need to pay in the short-term future higher prices because everybody's anticipating that as well? Potentially. And I think it ties back to what Renato said before. It it also increases the need for those companies to figure out what their endpoints need to be and what kind of clinical data they're exactly. going to have to bring in order to support that product and that price that they're asking. I think, you know, I, I think I think there's a lot of variability in in how companies go at that and 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 what they do and that variability on the on the on the weaker side is is potentially putting them in a position as we're moving forward not to get out of not to get out of their assets what they expect to get yeah we are all, always back to the uh, to the value basis for pricing pricing cannot be established independently from the value proposition that's behind the product, that's behind the new therapy. And that value proposition critically depends on quantity, quality, and credibility of clinical evidence, which is brought forward when the manufacturer goes to the payers, goes to the health technology assessment bodies, and tries to demonstrate its point. You know, if uh, if I come with uh, 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 overall response rate and cannot translate that overall response rate into overall survival, it, you know, the value proposition is undermined. That's true. That, I mean, even though that, I mean, obviously we all know, I think uh, there are maybe areas where it's getting really tricky, right? Think about the 18 piece or so, right? Where you only have really a very low number of patients. I mean, that is, I mean, Having heard what you said, just uh, uh, Renato, right? I mean, especially with the let's say withdrawals of of product also in the U.S. and I mean some we have also seen in in Europe, but I think not to that extent yet. Um, what what do you think would that basically mean from a clinical developments perspective, especially in those areas? Think about those cell therapies and generally of those ATMPs. Mm -hmm. They're not getting it even more tricky. Maybe we're even 
blocking a bit that kind of development for the future? Well, especially if you look at uh, the uh, the area of cell and gene therapies, there have been a couple of very prominent cases also recently with Bluebird Bio withdrawing from Europe. Yes. I don't know that they'll be successful in the U.S. Uh, to the extent that they, they need to, but uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, they are now close to uh, – uh, they, they have got a couple of gene therapies approved in the United States. We'll see uh, uh, when they'll be on, uh, truly on the market with those gene therapies. We'll see if they can make a better case in the U.S. than they were able to make in Europe. Uh, but that's only the tip of the iceberg because there are other prominent cases like uh, – uh, you may remember uh, uh, GSK actually divesting a whole portfolio of gene therapies to Orchard Therapeutics, and Orchard Therapeutics now having to divest a number of products from that portfolio that they inherited from GSK uh, because, again, they cannot, uh, they cannot uh, uh, make uh, uh, business sense of that portfolio of gene therapies. So there, there seem to be some specific issues with the number, let's say, with the most demanding kind of therapies like gene therapies. Uh, it looks like, uh, uh, again, looking at the relatively limited number of successful launches in this field, including launches of CAR-T therapies, it looks like having those products incorporated into a much broader portfolio allows a greater level of sustainability of being in that business. Novartis is apparently quite happy with their launch of, uh, of Zolgensma, their launch of Chemraya. Um, so probably probably uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to achieve commercial success also with, with the most demanding therapies like gene therapies if you have the infrastructure and the support that you can have within a much larger corporation. Smaller companies are struggling a lot more. Again, example of Bluebird Bio, Orchard, compared to, to what's going on at Novartis, I think that's very telling. And Jack, I'm not sure to what extent that is that is possibly different, going to fare a different way in the United States than, than it fared in Europe. I don't know. I mean, I think it's. I, I, I think in some ways it 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 has a lot of parallels to kind of the early days to the to the not quite so early days of of rare disease, where where you where you at the beginning you kind of you kind of had people say, "Wow, this is great. We've never had treatments for these diseases before. Um, let's let's figure out how we can support them in the market." And I think the same thing the same thing generally has happened with cell and gene therapies. Mm -hmm. And you started to have people say, well, wait a minute, what is this for? And how does it work? And am I getting value for it? And where do I go? And then you started to see the people evaluate them in a different way. And also um, there's a lot more flexibility for somebody to say, how does this fit within my portfolio and what can I do with it? than it is for somebody to do it, launch it, make a success of it when it's their only asset. There's those, those, those things are just fundamentally different. And that doesn't mean it can't work as a single asset. It can, but you, you don't have as much flexibility around what the, what the issues are that you're going to work out once you're really trying to do it. 
um, as opposed to what you have to work out before. So I, I, I think, you know, I, I think the issues are real. And I, at the same time, I, 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 I hope that the, that the, um, the healthcare systems that we all live in and is a part of um, figure out a way to, to bite off, chew and digest these therapies um, where, they, where they offer value and, and where they can really help people because there are a lot of them that really can't. I know, for instance, I mean, I've done, I've done cell and gene therapies, uh, worked, on, worked on them uh, as a consultant for people where there have been tens of patients and I've worked on other ones where there are tens of thousands of patients. So even within that umbrella, they're not the same. No, absolutely. Perfect. I think that was a, that was a good kind of, let's say, end of a discussion. I think we started very, let's say, broad from a U.S. European <laughs> perspective and then went into some of the more kind of uh, real issues also around ATMPs. Thanks a lot, Jack Renato. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank My you, pleasure. Stefan. Thanks, Stefan. Great insights from Renato and Jack on the current debates in the U.S. and the potential impact, or maybe not, in Europe. I think um, what was probably also important and interesting is especially to see how both have tried to, let's say, learn, let's maybe call it like that, from history. I think there were different um, environments already happening where some experts have already seen the risk that prices will and could have been significantly decreased some years ago. But currently still, it's a bit of a question. I, I would like to quote as well what Jack said. It's maybe a long-term game where I think he might especially refer back to the negotiation opportunity for Medicare. And we have just heard in the introduction that still a vast majority of patients and the population is being um, served by Medicare and Medicaid and other governmental um, environments. So why is that important? Because, you know, at the end of the day, there might be a start now with some limited number of drugs close to being generic, but no equivalents yet available. So maybe more in the direction of potential biosimilars, where those have maybe not yet entered the market. But very important, Jack and Renato also just said both, look what happened with Germany those 12 years ago before Amnoc. That was also, let's say, the kind of idea, yes, we are happy to pay maybe more, but we're not happy to pay that much more. That's what we see currently in the public debate in the US. So it could very well be that the current kind of, let's say, start of such negotiations could really be the start of a longer-term kind of project, meaning that Medicare, Medicaid, maybe also other payers, especially governmental payers, might be able then to negotiate prices further down. And what and which kind of, let's say, tools you might have, I think Renato is still more the opinion that the added value, so the 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 evidence based of a drug and of a product, would still be more important and will be still the key driver of pricing and price negotiations. However, I think there's still a bit of a risk, at least, that payers would also look at other markets at other prices. Hence, um, include also and even in the U.S. an international reference price system. I think it would also be quite evident that this would and could not only be, for example, Canada and for sure not South American countries. So it would be probably more looking into other similar kind of, if you can call it similar, kind of countries like the UK, maybe also Australia. But then you're probably suddenly back also to at least some of the European countries. 
Why is that important? Just keep in mind the US has such a huge population, which might also be then the kind of case that some companies might drill and change the price that it might still optimize the revenue in the US, which could potentially be too high for some of the other markets. So let's just see. I think at the end of the day, both Jack and Renato probably agreed that at least in the shorter midterm, such a kind of effect might not be seen. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.